Hi, and welcome to The Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett. I am your host, Blaine Bartlett, and my guest today is um, Ron Carucci, and I'm going to talk a little bit about Ron's background by way of introduction to the show itself. Uh, for those of you that are new to the show, um, The Soul of Business uh, is my way of actually tapping into a conversation about what is the nature of success, I guess, in the broadest sense of the word here. Um, success is tapped into and, and, and actually brought into being when people have the ability and have the wherewithal actually to connect to something that's personally meaningful to them. Um, it's, success is defined in a lot of different ways, but one way is uh, it's the steady progression towards a worthy ideal. And it's that worthy ideal that I think is uh, worth paying attention to. So when we're looking at a, um, a conversation around the soul of business, business does have a soul. And in Carl Jung's words, the soul of anything is that part of anything that cries out to be more, to have more, to do more. It's that striving for that worthy ideal. And when people in an organization have access to being able to do that on a consistent and regular basis, you're gonna have some people that are pretty passionate about what they're doing. And the organization, by and large, is gonna be relatively successful, I would say. So that's uh, the Cliff Note version of what the Soul of Business podcast is about. And my guest today, Ron Carucci, uh, is an author and um, a Forbes contributor, and actually more than a Forbes contributor, he's also uh, got a fascinating article in the Harvard Business Review that I wanna to touch a little bit on. He did a, um, very fascinating a longitudinal study on executive transition to find out why more than 50% of leaders fail within their first 18 months of coming into a new position. And um, I'm, I'm excited in one part to have him on the show, not the least of which is the reason that he's you know, just down the road from me here. I'm up in Seattle, Washington right now, and uh, he's in the Seattle area as well, which we just found out you know, in some of our preliminary conversations. So. Ron, I want to welcome you to the show, and uh, thank you for being a guest. Blaine, so great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, good to be with you as a neighbor. Yes, okay. Well, as I do with uh, every episode here, I start off with my guests by asking a simple question, and it's the, the single question that I ask, and then we'll just kind of riff from there. Uh, but you know, the soul of business, when you think of the soul of business, what does it conjure up for you? Uh, gosh, uh, it sort of makes my heart beat a little bit faster because it's, you know, it's why you and I do what we do and why we do it. Um, so I'll start with a, a brief story that comes to mind. We, um, so part of the research you mentioned is based on decades of diagnostic interviews that we do in our, in our client organizations to help uncover what's got an organization stuck. And in one, one very momentous interview with a woman in a company, very large, known, known branded company that was struggling severely and it was, the place was not in a good mood. But she showed up to the interview bubbly, effervescent, you know, not like anybody else in the organization that was facing the pains they were. And she said, and we began our conversation and she said, I love my job. And I, I, I was so taken back by the, the exuberance and the definitiveness with which she said it. I said, well, tell me what, why do you love it? And she said, because it loves me back. Ah. And, uh, uh, and she didn't hesitate to answer the question that way. And 
I, and I knew, it's funny, as abstract as the answer sounds, I knew exactly what she meant. That she was being the best version of herself every day in spite of the difficult conditions they the headwinds they were facing. In our, um, in our 15 year, so the study you referenced was at our 10 year mark, but we went back at 15 years just last year to oh. do another study uh, on the systemic reality. So that study you referenced, um, isolated individual challenges and behaviors. I wanted to understand systemically the soul of business. And we, what we've learned uh, was the, the connection between organizational honesty and purpose. And we learned the four factors that predict very different, you know, so Wells Fargo, right? 5,000 people didn't wake up all in one morning at the same time and say, hey, here's an idea, right? We know that there are systemic factors that contributed to those people's choices. And it wasn't just that they were bad people. And it certainly wasn't just the culture. I wanted to understand under what conditions would people sell their soul yeah. and decide to be dishonest uh, and choose to withhold or distort the truth. And we identified four very recurring factors that predict whether or not people will forfeit their purpose, forfeit why they're there in exchange for some perceived degree of safety or anonymity and distort or withhold the truth. And it was disturbing. Uh, yeah. we, we also published the research in Harvard Business Review earlier this year. Um, and, uh, and it heartbreaking, right? Because we, 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 everybody's purpose washing these days, right? Yeah. The business roundtable just signed their 143 CEOs purpose of a corporation. That's great. That's well and good. Now let's put some teeth behind it. But we all know we, you, we can consume enough content on purpose and meaning in the workplace. People want that. But we're purpose washing it by, by, by marketing departments trying to hijack the reality and make companies look purpose driven and create the appearance of it. But, but when you walk inside their cultures, you realize that's quickly only a cosmetic reality. Cosmetic, yeah. And yet people sit in their cubicles hungry and languished. Um, my, my Forbes article this week uh, was three things to remember about the person in the cubicle next to you this holiday season. And I, um, this was a company we were, we were doing the final year in business review. Mm -hmm. And uh, on a break, I walked out in the hallway and I happened to just catch out of the corner of my eye, a woman rushing from the bathroom, covering her face that was clearly very red back into her cubicle. She clearly been crying. And I was perplexed that I turned to someone in the business review and I kindly inquired about what I had seen and should I be concerned and she said in a very thinly saccharine kind of sweet voice, oh, uh, yes, we know that's Heather. Yeah, she, she's, since her husband died three years ago, she's always sad during the holidays. We're used to it. Oh, oh. I, I, Blaine, oh. I was stunned. This is a company that prided itself on its inclusion. Wow. And I'm like, how? so for the next two days, I was just preoccupied with Heather. Every time I walked past her cubicle, she was alone doing her work. Uh -huh. Everybody else was used to it. And I'm like, we can't call it inclusion. No. We can't call it purpose if there's somebody in the cubicle next to us heartbroken that we know is heartbroken and we know why they're heartbroken and we're not doing anything about it. That just yeah. made, it made no sense to me. So my article on, was on compassion this week well, uh, in Forbes. On the, uh, you can't call it inclusion if there's no compassion. Yeah. Uh, and, Absolutely. and so for me, the woman's interview in a hard situation 
is the solo business for me. And that story is definitely not. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, it's, um, strikes me, you know, compassion, you know, the book that uh, we were talking about, the one that I wrote here about a year or so ago, Compassionate Capitalism, A Journey to the Soul of Business. And I wrote that book in part as a, not an answer to, but as a uh, corollary to uh, the book that uh, John Mackey and uh, Raj Sisodia wrote, uh, Conscious Capitalism. And I, and, and I know both of them very well. They're good friends. And it struck me that just being conscious is not enough. So it's to the point you know, that you're making. Yeah, we, you know, we looked around. Yeah, that's Heather. We're aware that that's going on with her. Doesn't count. Doesn't, Doesn't count. count. Awareness, consciousness by itself isn't enough. Compassion is the behavioral analog to yeah. that awareness if you want to have it have some teeth. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. And, I, and compassion is rooted in connection. Right. And it has to be in relationship. And so often when people want interventions from us on changing behavior, you know, can you do a one hour seminar on being more strategic? <laughs> I can barely raise consciousness in an hour, but that's about all I could do. Yeah. So, but why do you believe that's going to enact anything more than do you feel like you're checking a box? People want, I think people want all the benefits of being a purpose-driven company. Yeah. They just don't want to do the hard work it takes to get there. So they want the appearance of being purpose-driven. And thus we have all the purpose washing. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, a couple of years ago, we had sustainability washing. We've had, you know, culture washing. And it's sad because people see, people see right through it, right? We don't, yeah. need, any, we don't need any more reasons to make people cynical. Uh, you know, people, people's leaders today, that was one of the painful realities in our 10-year in our study that you referenced earlier. People start... Mm -hmm distrusting leaders today. A leader begins their journey distrusted. There's yeah. no more neutral ground. And does that suck? Sure, it does. But, but that's the landscape we find ourselves on. So if you're not willing to get yourself from out of the red into the black and get and earn trust, um, then, uh, and the only way you're gonna do that is to show that you care, that, that your, your, your actions and your words match. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the findings in our study on honesty was about strategic clarity, being who you say you are. If your organization says one thing, commits to one thing, sets one set of objectives, but its behavior does another, right? You are three times more likely to have people lie with all the truth because you, you have now institutionalized duplicity. Yes. Right. And so now what everybody understands is, Oh, I see. We say these things, we don't actually do them. Right. So that means it's perfectly okay for me to say something that I don't intend to do. That's how we win here. So when I'm in meetings and you ask for my opinion, I'm going to say what I think you want to hear uh, about that disaster you're about to launch, but I'm not going to actually tell you it's going to be a disaster. Yeah. And you well, know, I, so, so that's just one of the four factors, right? Yeah. So you can't, you can't create a compassionate and honest environment if people are not being authentic. Absolutely. Um, and if you institutionalize inauthenticity, you know, it's not somebody, somebody would probably prefer to be authentic and compassionate and purpose driven, but you've created conditions under which that's very difficult. It's very difficult to do. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I teach a program called authenticity and leadership and it's almost an oxymoron. Yeah. In one sense, uh, when I'm working <laughs> with some folks, um, and, I, I struggled for a while when I first, and I've been doing this program uh, for about five years now with us uh, in different uh, venues. 
Uh, it's one of our uh, uh, Keystone programs. And I struggled for a while in defining what authenticity was. And I mean, I looked at Heidegger, I looked at Kierkegaard. I, I mean, I, I just went through all you know, the traditional and regular academic ways of looking at it. And I finally landed on a, a definition that seems to resonate. And it's, you know, authenticity is what I'm left with when I stop trying to impress you. Yeah. And that seems to be, you know, what you're speaking to here about, you know, being honest uh, in, a, in a workplace that has institutionalized dishonesty. Yeah. If, if, if I'm trying to go, get along to go along, or go along to get along, I guess is a better way of saying that. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose myself, and, uh, and I lose my soul in the process. And the sad part about that, Blaine, is I don't even realize it's happening, right? I, I, suddenly, I'm 48 years old. I wake up in the middle of the day, and I suddenly realize, wow, I left myself a decade ago. Yeah. And, and, and you look at depression rates and anxiety rates, especially among people in their middle age 40s and early 50s. It's staggering. Suicide rates among your, yours and my peer group. Oh, absolutely. Because, because the people sold their soul 20 years ago, didn't know they did it. Mm -hmm. Got on the conveyor belt and you know, went on, onto autopilot cruise control. And okay. suddenly they, something happens, some usually life force enters in uh, and people wake up and realize, well, I, I don't know what exit I took off the highway at what point. I just know that I'm, I see the welcome to Ohio sign and I, this is not yeah. where I'm supposed to be. Um, and I suddenly I realized I'm in the wrong story. I'm not in my own story anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Sleep at the wheel. Yeah. And, and yeah, at some point we wake up. And so, for many of us, it's not a pleasant experience to wake up and look around and go, yeah. how in the hell did I get here? Yeah. Right. It's, it's, in fact, it's agonizing. Yeah. It's agonizing. And it's, and it's cruel. It, it, I mean, it's, and it's self-cruelty because you, did, you, you colluded with the environment. You made the choice to collude with the environment and not, maybe unwittingly, but now you have to sort of, you get angry and blame or you get angry and get self-contemptuous, but, but you, now, what do you do in the moment when you've woken up? Yeah. Um, and, and especially if you think, well, I'm, now I'm 50, it's too late, or I'm not optimizing for enough time anymore. I can't get that time back. So you go through all kinds of grieving and you know, anguish and soul crushing dark nights of the soul. And, and then you just waste more time, right? I, so many executives that I work with find themselves in that moment of, you know, their, their soul that they've numbed for so long is now thawing out. The numbing mechanisms aren't working anymore. Yep. And the thaw is painful. And you certainly can't do it alone. That's a recipe for... Well, you know, you're, 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 what I want to you know, kind of look at here is what's the, uh, the antidote, I guess, in one sense. Um, in, in your... Uh, uh, initial study, you, you'd identified uh, you know four four key pieces here. One of them uh, was you know, really intriguing to me: dishonesty or naivete about the trade-offs involved in being uh, uh, in in position as a leader. And and I'm and I want to disabuse the listener right now of of uh, a notion about what a leader is. A leader is not titled uh, in an organization. Now there's roles that are titled. But for me, in the way that I work, you know, a leader is anybody in the organization that's causing movement to happen in the organization. And by right. definition, that's everybody, because everybody's causing movement in some way. So right. if I recognize that I am a leader, I may not have title or position, but I am a leader, I'm causing movement. Am I being effective in that process? And effectiveness would be, am I getting 
the movement I need to get the results, the ideals that I say I value in place. So yeah. this is where the question of naivete or uh, dishonesty about the trade-offs involved. And I think this feeds back into you know, one of the four factors in uh, organizational honesty and purpose. Uh, if I'm not willing to address the trade-offs, that there is a compromise here um, that I need to be number one, aware of, and then number two, make a deliberate choice about how yeah. I want to work with that. Now, what, what's your thoughts on that? You know, it's interesting. So um, that, that factor came under the, under the mention of choice, choice making mm -hmm. in the individual ship. In, the, in the, um, the honesty study, what, one of the factors that came back was governance, right? So if, you're, if your decision making processes don't, if I can't get access to honest information or what happens in the room goes underground and I have to rely on gossip and rumors and palace intrigue, to get information, you're three and a half times more likely that people lie with all the truth. One of the most fascinating um, things we discovered in the 10-year study about leadership that you're referencing was on the issue of power. We isolated for that dimension to see, are we gonna find the typical corruptions of power for self-interest or a moral gain? And those were certainly there, but they were by far not the biggest abuses of power. By a factor of three, the biggest abuses of power were the abandonment of it. The what? People, the abandonment. The abandonment. People too fearful, too uh, uncomfortable using the power that came with their role. And so setting it aside in, in exchange for being liked, being popular, uh, uh, currying favor, um, which puts you in a place where you can't make a trade-off anymore, right? Because cool. you're now, your, your goal becomes to please people, uh, to buy their popularity and regard. And the reality is, um, le leadership is the ability to disappoint people at a rate they can absorb. That's and a great that, definition. And if you don't understand that, you're going to hurt people. You are there to serve a greater good. And sometimes that has to be at the expense of people's individual agendas. Yeah. And it even means saying no to great ideas. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you'll get any extra credit for being able to say no to a stupid idea. But when you've committed to three great ideas and there's no more capacity to do more and you get a fourth and a fifth great idea and you still commit to them anyway, knowing full well there's no resource or capacity to execute them, you've now institutionalized mediocrity yep. and set up everybody to fail. And you did it because you didn't want to say no to these two people who lobbied you for the resources and money to do it. Yeah. Well, you, you made, now you made everybody unhappy. You look good in the moment. And those are the trade-offs that you don't realize you, what you're, what you're, you're, it's a, you're mortgaging the future of the organization, yep. diluting its ability to succeed. And the very credibility you thought you were purchasing for yourself, you're actually diluting. Because exactly. once people realize what you did, uh, we had one, I had one client that was you know, fondly referred to as the waffle. And the, everybody knew the game, right? Before the executive team meeting, last one in got their way. So people timed their lobbying moments or their advocacy seeking moments for as close to the team meeting as they could get so that whatever had, he nodded, you know, yep. now when he walked into the executive team meeting, the four other people that lobbied in the day before have no idea that their decision has been upended. Yep. They're walking into the meeting thinking they got their way. Now I'm joking, um, but I know, I know, I know this CEO. <laughs> yeah, I've actually... there, there, there's so many of them that just abandon their power. Yep. Go, go on, you know, become candidates for the next vacancy in the spine donor list and, and, and completely weaken the institution's ability to succeed and compete. Um, Which, and nobody is going to feel a sense of purpose and conviction and passion in an environment where they know that's the game. Exactly. And, and when, again, I kind of bring it back to the, 
the notion of the soul of business, soul is an enlivening, inspiring, uh, uh, generative uh, dynamic or phenomena. Uh, I don't know any other adjectives to use here, but if I'm continuously sacrificing in service of being liked, um, I begin to quash the spirit that actually right. is the organization and is the people in the organization. Because, you know, to, to your point here, people know what the game is and they begin right. to become dispirited. And well, and just that, that there is a game. Right. Yeah. At, you know, and, and, and if I'm at the top of the enterprise or I'm at in a leadership role where I my life is now on the jumbotron, my life is now public mm -hmm. discourse. Um, everything I say is amplified. Um, so is my duplicity. Yep. Right. My reputational capital is now being spent on the game instead of on the impact I want to have. So now I go home at night and have to. I can't reconcile the gap between who I said I, I claimed to be and who I actually was that day. So yeah. I drink or I do something else uh, as a way to not have to face into the disparity between what I said I wanted to be, what I said I would never do, the, the compromises I said I would never make, and the slippery slope I've now found myself on. Well, that, yeah, and that was, yeah, I think, the number four point that you had in uh, your, your initial study about can't handling the emotional toll and I've got, again, when I was looking at that, and when I actually read it, it was the emotional toll is um, that price I pay for compromising who I am. Or the price you pay for not compromising and being isolated and disparaged by people who want you to. Okay. Right? I was wondering how, it's because a, it's both sides of the same. Either, either way, ex you know, if you are, you know, what nobody tells you, and this is what we learned after 2,700 interviews for that leadership study, which is, you know, it's in our book, Rising to Power. Um, if you're going to be an executive, you are going to suffer. Yes. It's, 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 it is part of the role. And if you're not willing to do the suffering and sacrifice, it, it requires to do it well, you shouldn't do it. Uh, rather, but, but to try and pad, you know, sort of insulate yourself from the pain, it is just setting yourself up for a career limiting moment. Um, you know, what, what they don't tell you, uh, it, you know, it's stunning to me how many executives tell us how unprepared they were for the role they thought they were told they were prepared for. Oh, absolutely. Um, get it. Yep. And, you know, you're, you, because you are now being concocted, right? You're, you're now on the Jumbotron 24-7. People are making up versions of you. You're, things are being attributed to you that you never said. You know, people are dropping your name. You know, the, you can't walk down the hall quickly without someone saying, oh, my God, something's wrong, when you were just going to the bathroom. Yeah. And now you're the alien next door. People, people who you used to be friends with are now looking at you like they want something or they don't trust you anymore. You know, you're the alien next door. Mm -hmm. And all the political dynamics have now changed. And how do you succeed in an environment? And they all tell me, I just want to be myself. Well, the problem is there's not one of you anymore. There's yeah. multiple versions of you. You, exactly. can, you, can, you can influence the narrative to some degree, but you can't control all the narrative. The people you're leading are halfway across the world. If you are going to try and keep up with all those narratives, you're going to you're going to distort yourself into a chameleon that now nobody knows who you are. Yep, and, your and including yourself. Including yourself. Yep. Your best offense yep. is a good offense by simply letting people know who you are. Vulnerability with your humanity is your best defense. Exposure is your safest place. Hiding is not safe. Yeah, which is an interesting paradox. You know, an old mentor of mine, a fellow by the name of uh, you know, Will Schutz, Dr. Will Schutz, um, said to me one time, 
Uh, and we were, you know, kind of riffing on you know, a particular uh, client that I was having some difficulty with. And he said, you know, people connect through vulnerability. They connect through vulnerability. And if you can get your client to understand that, you're going to be 99% home. And then, you know, I was working with another client in the telecom space, and I was you know, working with that notion, that meme. And one of the folks that I was working with said, you know, we, I understand that I connect through vulnerability, but I also want to, you know, <laughs> the flip side of that is I'm experiencing that I'm disconnecting through certainty. It doesn't give anybody a place to connect with me if I'm showing up certain all the time. So the paradox of vulnerability is really an interesting one to play with. And vulnerability I, is frightening. I think we have a, I, I wrote an article, HBR, uh, called How to Work with Somebody Who Thinks They're Always Right. Yeah. Um, and it's, I, you know, I call the disease chronic certainty, people who suffer with chronic certainty. Um, whether it's the conditions around them provoke that, that, that looking uncertain, saying I don't know, um, looking at the various shades of gray there are in an answer to a question, looking at the numerous dueling interpretations of data that there are, and being comfortable in that, yeah, and therefore having to impose certainty where there's none, um, it, it's only self-soothing, right? That is only for the purposes of self-comfort. There's no other benefit to it, and, there, and people don't realize the many destructive outcomes there are of, of, of catching chronic certainty or creating a culture of chronic certainty. Microsoft was what is known for that. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, and they are working very hard to break that culture down to go from being a culture of know-it-alls to a culture of learn-it-alls, as Sadia calls it. Um, but but your the, 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 the place I know I've got my greatest pay dirt with an executive is on the convictions that, that are most immovable. The more adamant they are, the more dogmatic they are in a point of view, the more I know that's where I need to go digging. Because yep. those are likely the most untested assumptions. Those are the most places of fear and anxiety yep. uh, and, or their own, their own narrative being triggered somehow. Uh, and the, but, but the, I don't think what leaders are going to appreciate, I'm curious if you've seen this, they don't appreciate how they're toxifying the soul of their business with those behaviors. Their own pathologies yes. are actually spreading in ways uh, that uh, because they refuse to change or address their own challenges, mm -hmm. they're imposing them on the organization. Yeah, my, my organization is nothing less and nothing more than a reflection of who I am. I mean, that's uh, in, in, the, in the greater gestalt of things, that's essentially what we end up with. Yeah. Um, so, for good or bad. <laughs> for good or bad, yeah. So from a leadership perspective, when, if I'm looking at leadership development as something that I want to attend to if I'm in a, in a role, I have to start working with myself first. It's not about tactics. It's not about yeah. strategy. It's about an inward ex exploration and then being compassionate enough with myself to confront that you know, dark night of the soul or the dark night, actually the, for me more precisely, the dark night of the ego. Because uh, yeah, I, yeah. I have to collapse the ego in some way, shape or form in order to access the soul. Yeah. I um, uh, Maybe your readers would enjoy this and you put it in your show notes. I, my last article in HBR was called Getting to the Origins of Destructive Behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, a, it's work that I do with leaders uh, when there's a behavior that's you know, for which other developmental avenues or coaching or uh, approaches don't work. When a behavior is so change resistant, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, angry outbursts or freezing up in hard moments or uh, talking too much. Um, I know that there's an origin to that story that's deeper than just technique. And yeah. so I do an activity called origin stories. 
um, and the article is the process with a, with, you know, with a client's detailed origin story of getting to the roots of uh, behaviors and the roots of challenges, uh, and how do you look? How do you re how do you rescript those narratives so that you can actually get on the path of change? Um, and it's a it's a poignant article. It's gotten I've gotten some letters from all over the world from people around. You know, they actually tried it. I, I just yes, I got a letter from a lawyer in London. Who, <laughs> Who, who actually began to do the work and started to face into the, 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 the horrible, um, violent divorce of his parents. Mm. And he just became a father himself. And so he was, he was exploring what his origin stories meant to his own inability to assert his views, his own ability to, to his need to please people. Yep. Um, and I was, it was very courageous of him to write. And, uh, but it takes the courage to look into the origins of behaviors that you know are inherently not helpful. Right. Um, that you probably have dismissed in some way to say, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's my quirk. Or, yeah, that's me. I'm a little impatient, yes. you know, when that's code for your Mack truck. Yep. Um, and, and unless you're willing to look at, you know, the, our, our destructive behaviors are not random. Right? Oh, they, God. They, they, they come from some very specific place and they're learned. And, they're, you know, layering over them with technique is like, you know, trying to cover up a cesspool with dirt. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, doesn't work. Doesn't, and, doesn't work. No. But so many of the coaching professions out there are just trying to, you know, layer on mindfulness techniques or other very superficial solutions, right. which can have, have their place. But for the but for deeper change resistant behaviors, you, you have to dig a little deeper. Yeah, there, there's some shadow work involved with this. And yeah, uh, and that's not to be dismissed. I mean, it, it's it's heavy lifting. It, it, well, I, you, you dismiss it at your peril. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not going away. And the, and the, you know, people saying that, well, that's just the way I am, or that's just the way he or she is, does not do anybody any service at all. Uh, well, I mean, it's it's the destruction of, of a you know. I, I had one executive tell me, she, you know, she she you know, I, from her team, it was the classic nothing I ever do is good enough for her. Um, and her response was, "Yeah, people disappoint me all the time because I have very high standards." <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, you've you've now weaponized those standards." Yeah, and you've now ensured that nobody will ever give you their best performance because they don't, they believe they can't, and they've decided it's not worth trying. So yeah. congratulations on your high standards. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and don't delude yourself in thinking you're going to get them. Yeah, because well, no one's ever going to meet them, and you, and you're determined to make sure they don't because the only way you feel good about yourself is having people disappoint you. Yeah. Yep. And so you've made it so that if anybody ever met your standards, you'd feel inadequate and vulnerable. Yeah, you didn't set them high enough. Right. And so, or, or now they're as good as you and you have to find another way to add value other than being discontent all the time. Yeah. Ron, I appreciate you taking the time today. I'm going to be mindful of our, our, our clock here. Um, how can folks get a, a, a bit more of what I think is a, an incredible, uh, incredibly rich uh, uh, pool of resources here and knowledge? Yeah. How, how well, can thanks for asking, Blake. Come, come, please come visit us at Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T dot com. We've got a great quarterly magazine. If you're, if you're leading some type of transformative change in your world that you need, our, our playbook on transformation is a free ebook. Uh, you can come to navalent.com slash transformation and get that free ebook. Uh, you'll find some great videos. Uh, there's two online courses on leadership and being strategic uh, there. Uh, there's all kinds of videos and white papers. So it's a, it is a, uh, an inten intentionally resource-rich place for leaders uh, and practitioners to come and hang out and get to know us and stay in touch. I'm also on Twitter and LinkedIn. So please come find me and let's keep chatting.
All right, that sounds, and it's Navalent, N -A -V, again, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T? Yep, dot com. Um, okay. Um, this is Blaine Bartlett. Uh, you've been listening to The Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett, and our guest today has been uh, author and uh, Harvard Business Review and Forbes contributor, uh, Ron Carucci. Uh, Ron, again, thank you very much. And Blaine, for, a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. You can find out more about the soul of business um, at uh, my website, blainebartlett.com. Uh, we have got a lot of resources there uh, that you can take advantage of and uh, do a deep dive. And if you are interested in developing your leadership expertise, uh, certainly uh, feel free to give Ron a call, you know, ping him, uh, and or me. Uh, I, I, I can do some stuff too. So <laughs> Ron, again, thank you very much. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.